Dear Father, thank You for this marvelous testament to Your sovereign knowledge and amazing grace toward us, to Your perfect care for us. Thank You, Father, that You are the One to whom we go. You are the One who searches us out. You are the One who knows us perfectly far better than we know ourselves. We, we pray that You would you would work through our brother Jeff, speak through his, his words to us as he points us to your word. And Father, we pray you would move in a powerful way in this body that, that what we hear this morning would further conform us to your beloved Son and make us more useful to you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, hello, church family. And I do mean that church family. This, this is a, this is a great treat for me. This is, first of all, it's just a joy to be back here with you. Uh, it's fun to walk into a place that you have not been in in many, many years and, and then just see so many familiar faces. Uh, then it's a joy to come here with my family. Uh, for, uh, for you to be able to, to meet my wife Anne and, and our four kids and, uh, and then it's just a special joy to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, you know, it's this this church family is is why I am who I am. You know, it's it's such a privilege to come back to see your your spiritual roots, your spiritual foundation. Um, you know, I, I got a message from someone from our church a couple of days ago, and she just said, "Would you thank your church family for me?" So I I, I thank you for being men and women who modeled. Um, the love and truth of God. This is where I learned to know God, love Him, uh, love His Word. And so I, uh, I just thank you. It is a great privilege uh, to be here. And uh, thanks, family cheering section back there. It's good to see all you guys there. Uh, for, uh, for all of you who don't know, my family and I live in Bourbonnais, Illinois. We're just south of Chicago. I have the privilege of being a pastor at Calvary Bible Church. I remember uh, when we were starting to look at that church, I said, I just like the fact that it says Bible Church in, in the name of it. Uh, that felt like home. And uh, so it's been our great privilege to be there and, and serve that family. So um, it is good to be here. Well, if you are not already there, would you turn with me to Psalm 139? You know, one of the books of the Bible that has always intrigued me, that I have always been drawn to, is the book of Psalms. The Psalms, of course, is a collection of 150 songs and prayers and, and poems. And as you're reading these individual Psalms, it's almost like you're reading someone's individual diary. You know, you almost feel like, should I be reading this? As you're reading the, these individual Psalms, you, you get a glimpse into what that psalmist is feeling in that moment or the season that they are going through. You know, as you read through the Psalms and you see the emotions of these writers, really what we're seeing is the emotions of humanity on display. You know, we see our hopes in this book. We see our dreams and our longings in this book. We see our disappointments. We see our fears. We see our doubts. We see our worship. We see our praises. I mean, it's all there. And there's nothing pretentious about the Psalms. I mean, the writers aren't writing through some rose-colored lenses, giving us a picture of life with God that is perfect. It's not giving us this 
picture of life that has no problems or challenges or struggles or worries. You know, I think sometimes within the church today, uh, we tend to hide our messiness as if others aren't walking in that same messiness. I think in the church today, within the walls of the church, we, we like to paint a picture of life that's nice and neat and clean and tidy. And yet you open up the book of Psalms, and that's not the picture we're given of what it looks like to walk with God. We're seeing, we're seeing a life with Him that sometimes is raw and it's real and it can be messy. You know, we have a psalm like Psalm 13 that begins with these words. How long, O God, will you forget me? And I don't know about you, but my first reaction sometimes is, is, can we say that? You know, can I say that to God? But then my other reaction is, as I read those words, I think, now that I get. Now that I can understand. Because I've been there. I've been in that place when you're looking up to the heavens and you're saying, God, are you even there? Have you abandoned me? The reason I'm drawn to the Psalms isn't just because humanity is on display. I mean, there's a lot of places where we see humanity on display. Just turn on TV and you see all of humanity on display, the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm not drawn to it just because The Psalms are raw and real. You see, the difference between Psalms and and, and TV or anything else that that shows us the rawness of reality is that in the book of Psalms, we see the character and the nature of God on display. In, In the book of Psalms, we see this intersection of the messiness of humanity and the holiness of God. And I don't know about you, but I need to see that. I need to see a God who is entering into my messiness. In the book of Psalms, we see writers, and they write about their struggles, and they write about their doubts, and they write about their fears, but they do it in the context and in the reality that God is God. They do that wrestling before him. Psalm 13 may begin, God, where are you? But that short psalm ends with these words. But, but I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice in your salvation. The psalmist is saying, God, this is how I'm feeling right now. It feels like you're distant. It feels like you're far away. It feels like you have forgotten me. But I know your word says something different. I know your character says something different. And so I'll trust you. In the Psalms, we see a God who isn't afraid of our messiness. He isn't afraid of our doubts. He isn't afraid of our wrestling. He isn't afraid of our worries. He isn't afraid of all of our questions. In fact, that's where God meets us. Scripture says, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And so today, I want to look at one of those wonderful psalms in which the holiness of God intersects with the messiness of humanity. It's a psalm in which King David gives us a picture of what it looks like for us not to cover up our struggles, not to to cover up our shame, not to hide our sin, but David gives us a picture of what it looks like for us to humbly and boldly bring that before God so that we can experience the joy of walking in God's mercy and God's grace. 
And so if you're not already there, once again, would you turn with me to Psalm 139? Uh, This is a psalm written by David. David ends this psalm by making a request. It's a request before God that I think it's an uncomfortable request. It's a request that I think if many of us are honest with ourselves, one that we would not necessarily make. It's a request in which God's, or in which David simply stands before God and says this, reveal my sin to me. I imagine that's a prayer many of us are not eager to pray. And yet scripture tells us that true joy in the Lord, true, true hope, true life, true freedom begins when we come before God in a place of spiritual brokenness before God, recognizing that we need Him. You see, you see, true life, true hope, true freedom in the Lord begins in a place of repentance before God as we walk once again in His amazing forgiveness. I think too many Christians are walking around today without hope. I, I don't mean the hope of salvation. Too many Christians are just walking around today without true hope because they have stuff in their lives that out of their own pride, they're not willing to bring before God. And there is a, I think a drudgery, I think just a mediocrity that we can find ourselves walking in, not fully knowing His grace that He fully gives us, His mercy that He fully gives us. And so before we get into this bold prayer of David, I want to briefly look at the verses leading up to it. Why is it that David brings himself to the place of making this very bold request? And so would you turn back with me, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even for a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in before, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. In the first six verses of this psalm, we get a wonderful description of the character and the nature of God. And in the first six verses, we're getting a description of who God is. One of those theological words we sometimes use that we use to describe God is the word omniscient. God is omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing. God knows everything about everything. He knows everything about me. And he knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from him. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, the reality that God knows everything can be very comforting. It's nice to know he knows everything. I mean, it's nice to know that there's nothing that can surprise him or shock him. It's nice to know that there's nothing that can happen in this world that can catch him off guard where he can go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. But the reality that God knows everything can also be very unsettling. Because I know me. I know my thoughts. And I know my heart. And you know you. And you know your thoughts. And you know your heart. And we know our thoughts are not always pure. 
And we know our motives are not always pure. And, and we know that there are things that enter into our mind that we know don't please God. And we know that there are things we have done in secret that do not please God. And we know our past sins. We know our past shame. We know those things that no one else knows. But God does. You see, we can't pretend before God. We stand before Him intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually Naked. As Hebrews says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes. David continues in verse 7. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed old, you are there. If I take the wings, uh, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Part of these words here are great hope that David is sharing with us, that no matter where we are in life, no matter what we go through, no matter what is happening, God is there in a position of leadership in our life. That's great hope of no matter what we're doing. He is there and he is in the place of leading. But but the other part of this passage is that David is acknowledging something else. God, I I can't flee from you. There's nowhere I can go that you're not going to be there. And let's be honest, there are times that we have wanted to flee from God. That there are times that we have wanted to hide from Him. That there are times that we don't want Him to know our thoughts. That there are times that we don't want Him to see what we just did. And the reason that there are times that we don't want that is because that's what sin does in our life. Sin wants us to run. Sin wants us to hide. Sin wants us to conceal the shame of sin in our lives says, God, don't, don't look at me. Don't, don't look at that area in my life. God, can I show you this area in my life? This is a nice area in my life, but God, don't go down there. Don't go down that hallway. Don't go down that left door on the right, because that's my private place, God. And that's only where I go. There are those times we say, God, I don't want you to know Everything And David is acknowledging the reality is we can't flee from God. You know, when sin first entered into this world through disobedience of Adam and Eve, their first response when they noticed that God's presence was walking in the garden was what? They hid themselves. Because that's what sin does. One of our kids, when they were younger, when they were caught doing something that they knew was wrong, they would suddenly just, they would sometimes just throw themselves on the floor and hide their face. And that wasn't anything that they learned. They didn't learn it from daddy. They didn't see daddy throw himself on the floor and hide himself face. They didn't learn that from mommy. You know where they learned that? From their sin nature. That's what sin does. Sin wants to hide. 
And so in the first 12 verses of the psalm, David is recognizing that God knows everything. God sees everything. Nothing can be hidden from him, even our sin. And then in verses 13 through 16, David is going to describe the intimate nature of God in our life, the intimate work of God in our life, that he has been there working even at conception and even before. Read with me verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the book were written. Every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. David is, is, is saying even when I was in the womb. Even when I was in the womb, you could see me. Now, obviously, this was a time before ultrasound. But, but in his days, I mean, the womb, that, that would have been the, the most hidden place anyone could be. And he's saying, even there, even there you knew me. And not only did you know me, but you were knitting me together. You were forming me. You were the one creating me and putting me together. And before any parts were together, you knew every single day of my life. David is saying, there has not been a moment that you have not been at work in my life. Verses 17 through 22, David goes on to talk about the wicked. He says, I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with the wicked. I don't want to have anything to do with those who are evil. God, my life is transparent before you. God, I want to live my life in a manner that pleases you. Help me, Father, to stay away from the things that do not please you. In these first 22 verses, David is establishing this incredible understanding of God, that he knows all, that he is everywhere, that he has been intimately involved in our lives from the beginning. And so in light of this, in light of his understanding of who God is, David goes before God and he makes an incredibly bold and humble request. Verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's interesting that David begins his request by saying, search me and know me, because he began, verse 1, by saying, you have searched me, God, and you do know me. So, so why does David make a request about something that David already knows about God? In fact, he just spent the first 22 verses telling us that he knows this about God. Because this request isn't so that David, that God would know David. This is David coming for God saying, God, I want you to know me. God, I know you know me. And I want you to know me. God, I know nothing is hidden from you. And I don't want anything to be hidden from you. And he says, search me and know me. He's not saying, God, do something that you are not already doing. He's saying, God, I'm just bringing my life completely before you. I want to be transparent before you. I want to be honest with you. I want to be blameless before you. In this first statement, we see David's great love for God. I want to be in a relationship with you in a way that pleases you. You know... Whenever you have two people enter into a relationship, uh, it's a romantic relationship. They're, they're starting the process of getting to know each other. 
And then maybe after a couple weeks or after a couple months, they get to that point in which they begin to think, hey, you know what, this might be something here. This might be something that we really want to begin to make a commitment to, that we want to really begin to think, hey, this maybe this is a marriage relationship. And at that point, one of the people in the relationship might come to the other person and say, hey, um, there's some things in my past that you just need to know about. That, that, that as we begin to enter into this relationship, I, I need to open up some things in my past that, I'll be honest with you, I'm not real proud of. But it's a part of my past, and I want you to know about it. The reason they're saying that is this is out of a heart to say, I want to give myself fully to you. And there's some stuff in my life that I don't want you to think I am hiding from you. And I, I just want to bring it all out in the open. I want to come before you in just full transparency and full honesty because we all know that if you're in a relationship and you want intimacy in that relationship, there can't be things hidden in that relationship. So David is saying, search me, God. I am throwing the welcome mat in front of my life. And you come in, you go anywhere you want to go. You go upstairs, you go downstairs, you go into the basement. I don't want to hide anything from you because I want you to be God of every area of my life. I want you to be my God on Sunday morning. I want you to be my God on Wednesday night. I'm yours. And I'm fully available for you to look and to search wherever you want to search. You know, that, that, that word search here in verse 23 it means to cut deeply. It's a word to describe when you are searching something intimately. This is not a surface level search. In the horch house, we are often searching for things. But probably the most common thing we search for is our shoes. That's a big part of our day right there. We spend hours searching for our shoes. And normally one of our kids will say, Mom, I cannot find my shoes. And of course, Ann's first response was, Have you looked for them? And of course, they'll say, yes. And then my wife will say this. I want you to look not only with your eyes. I want you to look with your feet. And I want you to look with your hands. I actually want to move. I want you to move from that spot you're in. And I want you to walk places and lift up blankets and pillows. I want you to search. This is what David is saying of God. God, I... God, I, I know I look good on a Sunday morning, God. Oh, God, I, I know I say things on a Sunday morning, and people say, wow, that is a man walking in obedience to God. He knows the Word of God. David's saying, I know I can look good. But God, I don't want you to just look on the surface. Would you search deeply into my life? Because I know I have some stuff there that's not good. And this is where we now know that David gets serious. Because he says, and know my heart. So this is not just a, a general search. He said, David is saying, God, I want you to examine the core of who I am. I want you to look at my character. I want you to examine my motives. I want you to examine my desires, my longings, my thirst, my hunger. See, David is cutting to the core of the issue and he's saying, look at why I do what I do. 
Examine why I really worship you on the Sunday morning. Examine why I really read your word, Father. Get to the heart of the issue. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we do, what we think, what we say, it all comes out of what is in our heart. You know, it seems like every week there's some new public figure who who says something inappropriate, something offensive, in which there's quick public outcry and, and that person has to issue an apology. And so a few days later, there's an apology that goes out and it says, uh, I apologize for the words I spoke. That's not who I am. What they're wanting to do is they want to, to distance these offensive words from their character. They're wanting to, to separate these offensive actions from their heart. But Jesus says you can't do that. He says, because out of your heart is what we say, what we do. You know what a good apology would be? I apologize for the words I said. I have learned over the last couple of days, I still have heart issues that I have to search out and deal with before my God. See, that would be honest. I realized over the last couple of days that I have stuff going on inside at the core of who I am that causes me to say offensive things. And while it may not be who I want to be, I have to recognize it is who I am. David understands that if he wants God to search him, it's got to go beyond what he looks like on a Sunday morning or what he looks like when he sits on the throne. He's got to open up his heart. And he's just got to say, go in, God, because this is where I want you to examine me. Why would David ask this kind of request? Because David wants God to bring to the surface the things that separate him from God. He wants to bring to the surface the sin that breaks apart his intimacy with God. He wants to bring to the surface the sins that he needs to deal with before God. You see, repentance in our life doesn't happen or begin when God becomes aware of our sin. Repentance begins when we become aware of our sin. Repentance begins when when we bring it before God, when we recognize that our sin grieves Him. That our sin is an offense before a holy God. Repentance begins when we recognize that it's before God and God alone that we have sinned. Repentance begins when we recognize that it is God who can take away that sin and restore us. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have great hope in this area. Because we have been forgiven of our sins. The Bible says that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive our sins and give us salvation, that our life is now placed in Christ. And that we are now given the righteousness of Christ. Which means we have the privilege of standing before God blameless. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the day of judgment, your sins will not condemn you to hell because your life is in Christ. You stand before Him blameless. That's good news. But as long as we're on this earth, living on this side of heaven, 
living in bodies in which we have sin natures, there are going to still be times that you and I sin. And when we sin, we are going to hinder our relationship with God. Now, there's relational forgiveness that needs to happen. Our our, our salvation is secure. We, We stand before Him blameless when it comes to eternity, but we've also still sinned before Him. There is a relationship that still needs to be restored. And so as Christians, we need to be in the constant place of coming before God and examining our knives and saying, God, I want to be transparent before you. And if there is sin that I am avoiding or just in my own spiritual blindness, I can't see, search me. Bring that to the surface because I don't want to have anything against you. I want to walk in freedom with you. I want to have intimacy with you. Those are not easy words to say, are they? Search me. Here's my heart. Go in and examine It's uncomfortable. But to ask God to search us requires something. It requires that we have a greater love for Him than we have a love for ourselves. Stand before God and say, go in. Go into the messiness requires I have a greater love for Him than I do for myself. David understands that holiness and righteousness and faithfulness, that they're often revealed through the trials of life. And so David continues in verse 23. He says, try me and know my thoughts. What David is saying here in the second part of verse 23 is he's saying, God, test me. God, I know words are cheap. God, I I know anyone can stand before you and say, God, I want to please you. I, I want to live a life that honors you. He says, I, I know anyone can say that, but, but the, the difference is when you actually live it. And one of the ways our true character is revealed is how we respond in times of trial. This is why the book of James tells us that, that we should rejoice in our trials because, because in that trial, it's given an opportunity for our faith to be Tested. It's given an opportunity for, for our faith to produce spiritual endurance. First Peter tells us that, that when we go through trials, that it gives us an opportunity for our faith to be proved authentic and genuine. You see, trials, they have a way of revealing who we are. Trials have a way of shining a spotlight into our heart and into our character and bringing out, bringing up onto the surface what's really there. You know the moments that we get to shine the best as Christians, I think, is when we go through trials. I I think the moment, the the moments that we get to shine the brightest to a non-believing world and even encouragement to other believers is when we go through trials. That's often our greatest testimony. Uh, over this last year, I've had multiple hospital visits with a young couple in our uh, church. They, 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 their baby was born, just barely living and almost died. And then a year later, they, that little baby was having a liver transplant and, and almost died. And, you know, you walk back into that hospital room again and say, you know, I didn't really think I'd be here with you again. And it's a couple I really didn't know well in our church. I, I've joked that I feel like you get to know people in, in a church through the pastoral role one tragedy at a time. 
It's through those times you enter into their lives in a very intimate way. But I have seen that young couple shine. I've seen that young couple go through such a difficult season in giving God the glory to the nurses, to the doctors, to the hospitals, to our church family. Our greatest testimony is often our greatest trials. And listen, I I know that trials are hard. Trials are difficult. No one wants them. In fact, when we go through a time of trying our trial, our first response is normally this, God, take this away. Take this pain away. But as we go through pain and trials, may we not be too quick to ask Him to remove those things from our life. Because it is in those times that God can bring to the surface things that we need to get before God. Isaiah 48, the Lord is speaking to Israel. And he says, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. What God is saying here is he says, I've brought you into the fire and I've done it for a purpose. I've done it to refine you, to mature you, to grow you up spiritually. You see, sometimes God takes us into the fire of affliction. Sometimes the the, the pain in our life may be God leading us into that pain for His purposes in our life. But can I encourage us with this? That when God leads us into the fire of affliction, it is never to consume us, but it is to refine us. When God leads us into the fire of affliction, it's never to destroy us, it is to mature us. You see, there is hope. In the fire of affliction. Romans 5 says we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. God is saying, David is saying, I want the fire of affliction. God, test me. Because I want to stand holy before you. I want to stand blameless before you. I want the endurance that comes with suffering. I want the character that comes from endurance. I want the hope that comes from character. You know, in in verse 23, when when David says, try me, uh, this is not an attitude in which David is saying, God, bring it on. This is not an attitude of cockiness. This is an attitude of humility. You see, David doesn't want the suffering. He wants what the suffering will produce in his life. He doesn't want the pain, but he wants what the pain will produce in his life. And so out of his desire for holiness, out of his desire for righteousness, out of his desire to walk in a right relationship with God, he says, test me. I need to be tested. Try me. I need to be tried. He continues in verse 24 and he says, see if there is any grievous weight in me. The New Living Translation says, point out anything in me that offends you. He says, please God, give me full freedom to expose. I give you full freedom to expose that sin in my life. And that's not an easy thing for us to do. But I think that's an important thing for us to do. To be able to go before him and say, I'm I'm here. Because I think it can be easy sometimes for us to deceive ourselves. 
I think it can be easy for us to think we are responding and speaking in a manner that pleases God and we can actually find that we may be grieving Him. We may think that our motives are pure and right, but our motives may be selfish. When we go before Him and say, search me, He may bring offenses. He may bring relationships that need to be restored. Maybe relationships right now in this church that need to be restored. There may be idols that you never thought were idols. In fact, it's interesting, the New English translation says, examine me and probe my thoughts. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any idolatrous tendencies in me. Oh, Father, bring to mind anything that I have made my hope over you. Bring to mind anything that I've put my security in over you. Maybe, maybe my idol has become my family. Maybe my idol has become ministry. Maybe my idol is some spiritual gift that I love to use. And yet I have greater joy in that than I do in God. I have great desire in that than I do in God. David said, I, I, I want to let go of anything that keeps me from you. Reveal those things. And he comes to his final line and he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, when we turn from sin, if we just don't go anywhere, we'll just go into another sin. If we turn from sin and we turn from disobedience, but we don't walk in obedience, we're just going to find ourselves right back into sin. Right back into disobedience. And so David says... I bring myself before you. I recognize you're the leader. I'm the follower. I I recognize I submit to you. I surrender to you. So lead me because I'm bringing myself before you and I just want to go where you go. I want to stop where you stop. I want to speak where you speak. I want to do what you do. But God, I know what it's like to live on my own. And it's not good. Lead me. Lead me. You see, that's what we do when we come out of disobedience is we walk into a place of obedience. Lead me. You know, these are wonderful words from David. These are also hard words from David. Challenging words, convicting words, uncomfortable words. I I don't want to go open my heart and say, search me. You know, I kind of wrestled with this passage because I thought, wow, I get a chance to come in and be a guest teacher and I get to come back to church I grew up in. And Jeff, you're going to talk about sin? That's where you're going with your message? And I hope that you don't hear sin when you leave this message. I hope you hear hope. I hope you hear joy. I hope you hear freedom because that's what David is desiring. He's doing all of this because he knows there's something greater than his shame. He knows there's something greater than his sin. It's being in a right relationship with the very one who created him. It's being in a right relationship with the very one who knit him together in his mother's womb and was with him always. And David says, I have experienced that joy of walking with you and I don't want to leave that joy. May that be our longing. May that be our desire. The hope and the glory of God is far greater than the sin that we have been hiding for years. The joy of opening ourselves up and say, God, know me because I want to know you. Would you pray with me?
Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that while we were still sinners in a place of rebellion towards you, where our back was turned against you, out of your love you sent your Son to die for us, offering us the forgiveness of sins, offering us a, a to experience that, that, that new life, that new creation in you, to, to know what it is to be righteous before you, blameless before you. Father, I thank you for David's boldness. I, I thank you that he was willing to confront ugliness in his life so that he could know joy with you. Father, I pray for all of us in here that we would be willing to face the ugliness, to trade that in for the joy and the freedom and the hope of walking with you. May that be our desire. May that be our longing. And we ask this all in your son's precious, precious name. Amen.